0: Video and that message never, never gets old. So, hey, this is a bad way to start a sermon, but let me just uh, kind of share with you. I was out last week, it was unexpected, and uh, several people called, and and, uh, some people stopped me today and said, hey, what's going on? What's going on? And so, last week, uh, I woke up at five in the morning sick, not feeling well, and so I woke up and said, hey, Tosh, here's what's going on. And I said, don't panic. And so, she panicked. And so, uh, so there's, there was some scary symptoms. And so she takes me to the ER. And long story short, they admit me and run all kinds of tests on my heart and keep me overnight and, and do different things like that. And so good news was all those came back. Great. Uh, so your heart is. Uh, you always ask me the same question. Now, how's your diet? You know, what I was tell every time I said, it's hearty. Thank you for asking. Right. And so, followed my regular doctor, and so he said, Well, here's a couple things I think it was. It was a blood pressure spike, like 180 over 120. And uh, he said, So here's what I think it was, and here's what we'll do about it. And so, totally fixable. All those kinds of things. But we appreciate your prayers and your concerns. Several of you stopped me today. So, incredibly grateful for that. And I just want to say thank you publicly to Chris Anderson. He got the call that no associate pastor likes to get on Saturday at noon. I said, Hey, what are you doing today? He said, Nothing. Why? I said, What are you doing tomorrow? He said, Why? I said, You're preaching. And so I just appreciate him feeling on short notice. I called him afterwards. I was literally still in the hospital. And I said, how'd it go? He said, man, I was awesome. And so I don't... You'll have to listen. I don't know. I'm teasing. Well, so it is so good to be back with you. So good to have many of you back from the snowpocalypse last week. I saw a few hundred people missing last week for the weather. And so I understand that. So just good to be back together with you and in the church this morning. So uh, let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Galatians chapter 1. We are heading, uh, rounding third and heading for home. Uh, In our fast track series, we began with a eight week series and the goal was to go from Genesis to Revelation in eight weeks and basically break up the Bible into large kind of sections and then recognize that each of those sections kind of has a big picture or central theme. And really, when you see that theme, what you find is this is that the Bible is not a bunch of loosely disconnected stories and moral lessons and object lessons. That is one continuous story about God pursuing people consistently despite their inconsistent response. And that culminates, that whole story culminates in the person and work of Jesus Christ, just like the little bumper video showed uh, that we were walking through. And so uh, so each uh, section we've walked through, we've kind of had a history lesson so that you can follow the chronology or kind of the flow of events in God's unfolding plan uh, throughout history his redemptive history. And so, as we uh, wrapped up the Old Testament, moved kind of in the New Testament, uh, if you're familiar with the New Testament, you know this, the Gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John cover the life and ministry of Jesus. And so as Jesus uh, kind of is fading off the scene there in the Gospels, in Matthew chapter 28, as his ascension, he gives one final assignment to his disciples and says, hey, listen, I'm leaving, but I'm sending another, the comforter of the Holy Spirit is he's describing, and what I want you to do when I leave is I want you to go and Preach the gospel to every nation, baptize them, teach them, observe all things that I've committed to you. Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. We call that the Great Commission. So that was this last kind of assignment. So the question comes, how they do? Like, did they do it? Did they do okay? Those kind of things. And so that story of how the apostles carried out that last mandate or mission from Jesus really is what we find in the book of Acts and in the New Testament unfolding is the birth and journey of the local church and the early church and their struggles and their victories and all of those things uh, walking through. And so uh, so as we walk kind of through this section, uh, we're going to pick out and tell you a little bit about the book of Acts before we get to the, the book of Galatians. Now, this is just a little side note, a little free information, but it's important. As you study the flow of history in the Scriptures... One of the things you have to understand is this, that when you look at the Gospels and the Acts as a section of of Scripture, what you need to understand is they are historical in nature. Okay, Those are historical books of the New Testament. And the rest of that we would call the Epistles after Acts, so Romans on all the way to Prophetic, which is Revelation. So why do I tell you that? Because in historical sections like the Gospels and Acts, much of what you see, because it's historical, is descriptive in nature and not necessarily prescriptive for the church. Okay, some of it is, but you've got to take the general uh, descriptive principles and apply those. And so but much of what you see after Acts from Romans all the way to to Revelation is prescriptive for what we should be doing as the church, the body of Christ in there. So now all of Acts is is totally prescriptive. So it is going to be descriptive in nature. So let let me give you the book of Acts. Now, if you want to impress people like your knowledge of the Bible, those kind of things. Uh, The book of Acts is a big book. It's an important book in the the unfolding of God's plan, the gospel and the church. And so uh, let me tell you really simple how you can you can break down the book of Acts and you can understand how Acts fits together uh, before we get to Galatians. The book of Acts is like this. Chapter one, the Savior goes up. Chapter two, the spirit comes down. Chapter three and beyond, the church goes out. That's the whole book of Acts right there. The Savior goes up, chapter 1. The Spirit comes down, chapter 2. That's where we see the day of Pentecost. And I know we're Baptists, so that word makes us nervous. But then chapter 3, the church goes out. And as the church is going out and spreading the gospel, there's some incredible things that happen recorded for us in the book of Acts. And one of the things that happens in the book of Acts is in Acts chapter 9, a guy by the name of Paul comes to Christ in an incredible way on Damascus Road, his conversion. And so he comes to know Christ and then uh, God, God just, you know, here's a guy who's persecuting the church and, and just an enemy of the church. This guy becomes the greatest uh, missionary ever known. And so uh, much of what we see in Paul's writing is taking place on one of his three missionary journeys that he took. We, we know that from studying the New Testament. And so on his first missionary journey, Paul writes a letter to the churches in Galatia. And that's what we find there in Galatians. Uh, that's taking place there. And so, so that's kind of the transition that's happening from the Old Testament and the New Testament. And what we're going to call this section today in our fast track uh, from Acts through, through 1 Thessalonians is basically uh, called the church. And, and the thesis or the theme of this section is a new mission. And so why would we call it a new mission and talk about the church and the early church and the cause of the church and the call of the church and all those things? Here's why. So when God, God basically says, hey, listen, I'm going, I'm going to unfold a plan to redeem a lost and sinful world to myself. And so God has a chosen people a nation of Israel that they go. And he says, listen, I'm going to work through you and I want you to proclaim the message of the Messiah, which is my son. And so when he comes to Israel and says, listen, here he is, he's finally here. All the prophecies, all the things are fulfilled in Jesus and his chosen people, nation of Israel, they, they rejected the Messiah. And they're still rejecting the side, those who hold to Orthodox Judaism. And so so God, listen, God's plan is not limited by our disobedience. God's, God's going to do what God needs to do to accomplish his plan of redemption. That plan was set in foundation before the world even was created. And so God says, what, that's fine. Uh, I'll just find a new group of people. If you're going to reject the Messiah, I'll find a new group of people to work through. And so so that's where we see the church. Now, I just want to give you a little warning. I know it's early. It's time change. You lost some sleep. It's 18 degrees in here. I understand all that. All right. But even though it's early in the message, I'm going to just for a moment, I'm going to paddle through some deeper theological waters so you can understand this new mission, and why we would call it that. Okay? so put on your big boy, girl and pants. All right. Here's what it says when Israel rejected God's plan. And said, you know what, we're not going to take the message of the Messiah because we're not convinced that he is the Messiah. And God said, "Okay, listen, I'm going to put you on the back burner. All right. And and I'm going to find a new group of people to to take the gospel uh, to the to the Gentiles because you as Jews, uh, you've rejected it. And so I'm going to find some, non, some Gentiles, some non-Jews, and I'm going to work through them to advance the gospel. Where do we find that in Scripture? Romans chapter 11, verses 17 through 21 says this. It's kind of a weighty passage because there's some imagery here, so let me walk you through it. Romans chapter 11 says this. But if some of the branches were broken off, he's describing Israel there. Some of the branches were broken off. Why? Because they became useless. They rejected the mandate and the message and the Messiah. And so they became broken off. Some of them were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, who's that? He's talking about Gentiles. He's writing this to Gentile believers. And he's basically, hey, listen, the, the original branch that I was going to blossom through became useless because they rejected it. So they became broken off and you are like a wild branch. Why does he say that? Because they were not the natural plan of God. And so he says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take you Gentiles like a wild, wild olive branch, and I'm going to graft you in. It's not natural, but I'm going to graft you into the root and I'm going to blossom through you. All right. And so he just says, uh, don't be arrogant, though, towards those branches. Like, like Don't, don't look at, go oh, look at Israel, how stupid they are. Can you believe that? You know, after all God did for them, he says, don't be arrogant toward the branches. He says, then you will say branches are broken off so that I might be grafted. In. in other words, you're like arrogant, like, listen, the whole reason God did that is so he can work through us. Look at us. It's the same sin that Israel is guilty of. He says, they were broken off. I love this. Verse 20, Romans 11. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fierce. <laughs> listen to verse 21. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. You know what he's saying there? He them listen, if you do what they did, I'll break you off, too. And I'll graft another branch in here because I'm God and my plan of redemption is going to unfold through a willing group of people. And so that's what happened. So so what does the Gentiles have to do with the church? Well, here's what happened. Peter, for the most part, is studying the scripture of the New Testament. Peter's primary was the apostle to the Jews and Paul's primary ministry uh, was to the Gentiles. And when you study the New Testament, the overwhelming picture of Paul's methodology was this. He would go into a town and he would go right to the synagogue. Now, why would he do that? Because Paul grew up a a student of the law. Paul studied at the feet of a guy named Gamaliel who was the greatest teacher of the law. And so Paul, which is the best place, he had the training. And so Paul was one of the few people who could walk into the synagogue and and just go at it with him and, and be able to be conversant. As a matter of fact, superior in his knowledge of what was being taught. And so he would walk through and to begin discussing the law and they were teaching the law there in the synagogue. And then what he would do, he would take his knowledge of the law and his knowledge of Christ. And he would say, listen, all of these things, in the law that prophesied and pointed towards. Let me show you how Jesus is the fulfillment of all of that. And some people would reject it and say, no, it's not him. But some people embraced it and they received the gospel and received Christ and were saved at that point in time. So what Paul do? So Paul would go into town, go to the synagogue. Go, go head to head with him. Win some people to Christ. He would take those people out of the synagogue. He would find faithful men in that region, uh, establish them as elders or pastors. People debate as their interchangeable terms. But scripture says he would establish them as elders in that region and put those new believers. They would form a local church of baptized believers, leaving, living in biblical community together. And once that local church was established, he would go to the next town. the exact same thing. Over and over and over and over again. So that's the pattern in the New Testament. There's no shred of doubt about that. And so, 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 so this plan of this new mission is the church. And then so many times when we talk about the church, uh, we, we get into kind of like brands or like the Methodist Church or the Baptist Church or the Catholic Church or some of those things. Or we talk about the, the church building, the bricks and mortar. But listen, the church is a local assembly of baptized believers living in biblical community and covenant together for the sole purpose of advancing the gospel as the new mission and the way that Paul... Took the Gentiles and evangelized them was by planting new churches. And so when I get up here, sometimes I say this hey, we need, we need to be church planting, we're supporting church planters, and we've sent money to church planters. Sometimes uh, you're probably sitting out there going, why would we do that? Especially if they're close to us. Don't we want them to come to our church? Like, why are we supporting other churches? Here's why because the goal is to advance the gospel, not to build our kingdom here at Liberty Heights Church. And God's pattern and plan for advancing the gospel is through local New Testament churches. And it's over and over in Scripture. So, so when did that start? That started in Acts chapter two. Remember in Acts chapter two, uh, when the scripture says this, that uh, they were sitting around and like cloven tongues of fire came down and rested on their heads uh, in the day of Pentecost. And again, I know that word even makes some of you nervous, right? And so they, they spoke in native tongues, but they heard in their own tongue. And so that was the beginning or the birth of the church. And so, so here's what happens. And that plan for God to work through the church to reach people with the gospel and the church becoming the chosen vehicle to take the gospel to the nations. That plan will not be altered or in until Christ comes back for his church. Uh, and, and we read that in scripture. And so that's where we'll land. When we wrap up the series about the prophecy and revelation and some of those things. So 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 here's what happens. So God. Has a new mission and God says, if you're going to reject me, my plan will not be limited by your disobedience. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to birth a new thing called the church. And I'm going to use Paul to establish churches. And so as Paul's traveling around on his missionary journeys, doing this thing, this new mission from God to take the gospel to the nations. Paul, on his first missionary journey, uh, writes a letter to the churches at Galatia. And Paul just basically says, hey, listen, this is the the plan of God, but but you're wavering a little bit here. And so this is what we pick it up. And so uh, Galatians chapter one, let's look at verses one through ten this morning. He says, Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God, the father who raised him from the dead and all the brethren who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God, the father and Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil age, according to the will of God and father to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let me tell you what verses one through five is basically saying. Hello. All right. Just some pleasantries here. Just, hey, good, you know, you know, good to see you. That, that kind of a thing. But Paul's pattern, like there's no margin in Paul's life for subtlety. There's no margin for like, you know, downtime or trivial things. And so Paul says, hey, how you doing? Good. Right after that, in verse six, he says, what's wrong with you? Right. And so listen, imagine you see you haven't seen him for a long time. Hey, I haven't seen you. What's wrong with you? Right. That's why I look at verse six. What's he say? He says, I marvel. Like, I cannot believe you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another? But there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we are an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. And we have said before, so now I say again: If anyone preaches another gospel to you than what we have received, let him be accursed. For do I now persuade men or God? Do I seek to please men? For if I still please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. And that, that word bondservant basically is this. It means a willing slave is what it described. It's a slave that could go free, but chooses to surrender their life to the control and leadership of the master. So he said, listen, I've got two, two people I can please. I can either please the master as a bondservant or willing slave of Christ, or I can spend my life trying to please people. And so Paul, listen, Paul's. Life and played out in those things is a life spent on mission. Paul got it when God said, hey, listen, there's a new mission and and here's what I'm going to do now to to preach the gospel to the nations. Paul got it. But here's the question for us. If that's God's plan corporately, and God's plan corporately is achieved by us embracing it and living it out personally, the question becomes, are we doing that? And we talk a lot about being on mission. And I know that next week's the mission week, so maybe I'm getting a little excited for that, right? And so uh, so we talk about that missions. We, we, you know, push people to missions. Those, I mean, we're just passionate about that. And so, but the question becomes, we got to sit back and say, am I living my life on mission? And the answer we want to say is, well, I hope so or I think so. But practically speaking, the question we've got to come to is simply this. Well, well what does that look like? Like, I, like, I want to be, and I hope that I am. But, but, what is what are some characteristics of a person who is living their life on mission, pouring out their energies for the sake of the gospel? We're here in this passage in Galatians chapter one. Paul's going to lay out for us uh, three characteristics of a person who is living on mission. This is not an exhaustive list. We could go through the scriptures. We could find other characteristics. But these are some characteristics of a person who is living on mission in Galatians. Chapter one. So the first thing we found in this text is simply this. Is that people on mission, foundationally, they embrace their God-given assignment. That they embrace their God-given assignment. They realize that missions is not something that a small group of people are called to. Missions is not something that happens on the other side of the world. Missions is not what happens when we go on a bus or a plane. Missions is the call of God on my life. And as a matter of fact, when you understand that, when we come together corporately... That a, that a good picture of what we are and what we're doing here is not, not so much a church and, and it says, listen, think of it this way, that we are nothing but an organized missions agency where God is sending out people to take the gospel and building up believers to advance that cause. And so Paul, the starting point for his life was he embraced the fact that this was a God given assignment that God had called him to this and in Paul's personal conviction When God had called him to something, no man or no thing could pull him away from the call of God on his life. Paul describes it. Look at verse one. He says, I'm an apostle. What does that mean? The word apostle just means a sent one. And so are we all apostles? I mean, listen, the office of the apostle in Scripture, uh, some of the uh, criterion for truly the office of the apostle is they had to walk with Jesus uh, physically and they had to have seen Jesus resurrected from the dead to fulfill the office of apostle. So if anyone in any church circle says, oh, I'm an apostle, they must be a couple thousand years old. Take their picture, all right? But in the sense, in an apostle, little a, we are all sent ones. And so Paul says, listen, I'm sent one, but, but I'm not just sent from a church and I'm not just sent because a group of friends said I was gifted in this. And I'm not just sent because some missions agency came along and said, hey, you should consider this. What does he say in verse one? He says an apostle has sent one not for men nor through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And you read the accounts of Paul's life in the scripture and the adversity. You're thinking, "How I mean, shipwrecks and stone, you're left for dead. Be within an inch of his life, you know, be with a whip 39 times on some occasions. And you look at all that adversity and you, there's a point in time says, man, what will it take for this guy to quit? And the foundation of everything, the reason Paul persevered through all the adversity is this fundamental call and conviction of his life that he was sent from God. And once you come to the place where you're convinced you're called of God to do something, then no man or no thing can pull you from that call. Can I tell you something? That when I came here four years ago, it was not a pretty picture. And I had more than one person call me and say, don't do it. That is a sinking ship. It doesn't matter if it's your fault. If you're on deck when it goes down, that will be on your resume. You know, what my answer was over and over again. So listen, when I look at my experience and my gifting and the needs of that church, it's the call of God on my life. It's the call of God on my life. And so listen, when you're fundamentally convinced that God has a call in your life, listen, people or circumstances are irrelevant. You just pursue the call of God in your life. And so Paul embraced his God-given assignment. Now, when you look at Paul's life, and you, know, you look at all the adversity and all the heartache of living on mission, living your life, pouring it out for the gospel. Let me tell you something that's going to make you nervous this morning. Here's what I want you to understand and embrace this morning. That why the specifics of your call may differ... You are just as called as the Apostle Paul if you're a Christ follower. You are just as called as the Apostle Paul as a Christ follower. In Paul's life, we see maybe the specifics of his call played out in the pages of scripture for us, but oftentimes in pursuing that God's call on our lives, we often don't have that. Matter of fact, sometimes the the call of God on our life can be murky or we're not sure exactly uh, what that looks like. Let's this morning, let's just do a survey. Raise your hand this morning. If there's ever been a point in your life as a Christ follower where you've ever wondered what God's will is for your life. Anybody ever had that experience? Yeah, listen. Oh, why? Because here's what happens. We we often just don't know what that looks like. And then when you read people, there's there's debate about how to discover the will of God. Some people say there's a very specific will of God for your life. You can only marry this person or work at this job or go to this church or live in this house or those kinds of things. And then some people say, no, there's a more general will of God where you love God with all your heart. And you just follow desires as long as you're loving God with all of your heart. Psalm 37 and I would fall into that camp. I mean, there's, there's so much confusion about discovering this. Uh, there's so much confusion. John MacArthur wrote a book several years ago. And the title was a little tiny book called found the mystery of God's will as if the will of God had been hiding. It was under the couch all the time. And I had no idea. Right. And so why would you write a book like that? Because for so many people, it is so difficult to discern God's will for their life. And oftentimes what we want is the specifics of of the will of God for our life. So if you're here this morning and you want the specifics of the will of God for your life, I'm going to tell you what they are this morning. So be encouraged to write this down. okay? write this down. I don't know. I have no idea. Listen, the only person who I'm who I know the specific will of God for their life is, is Tasha. She said, I don't think that's true. I said, you're out of the will of God right now, right now. I don't know. I don't know. But here's my experience. I don't always know the specific will of God for your life, but but here's my experience. That oftentimes, in pursuing the specific will of God for our life, we often neglect the general will of God for every Christ follower. Now, why is that essential? Here's why. I'm absolutely convinced that a part of God revealing the details of the specific will of God for his life always is built on the foundation of obeying the general will of God for all believers. Listen, there are some things you don't have to pray about. There are some things that are in the general will of God for every single Christ follower. Let me just walk you through a few of these. First Thessalonians chapter four. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid Sexual immorality. First uh, Thessalonians chapter four verses three through five. That each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God. And so, listen. That is the general will of God for every believer's life. You don't have to pray about it, wonder about it. Listen, it's true for every Christ Father. Let me give you another one. Matthew six nineteen through twenty one. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves. Break it and steal, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break it and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You don't have to wonder, is it the specific will of God for my life to be generous towards the kingdom? It's the general will of God for everyone. Ephesians four thirty-two, be kind to one another, tender-hearted. Forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Listen, let me give you some news this morning. You don't have to pray and wonder, is it the specific will of God for my life to forgive? The answer is yes. And even if that other person is unrepentant, Luke seventeen three, you still have a responsibility to let the bitterness in your own anger flee from you. You don't have to pray about that. That's the general will of God for our lives, and discovering the specific will of God for our lives. The problem is this: the problem is this is that we're looking for some mysterious specific will, like like we're just we're, we're always looking for that truth that's yet to be discovered, instead of obeying the ones that are clear. We're always we're looking for the next prayer of Jabez, instead of just obeying the things that God's already laid out. And in discovering the specific will of God for our lives, it always starts with pursuing the general will of God for everyone's life who's a Christ follower. I mean, think about what's the alternative. God, until you reveal to me your specific will for my life, I'm not going to obey a single general thing you've told every Christian to do until you reveal it to me. That's ridiculous. But can I tell you this? That's exactly What a lot of people spend their time doing, wondering what is the will of God for my life and not obeying the general will for every Christ follower, which is the foundation of those things. So so what, what does this have to do with the church and the new mission and Paul and all those kinds of things? I'm thrilled that you ask. Here's the answer. Here's what I have to do. Listen, it is the general will of God. It is the general will of God for every single person who's a Christ follower to use their gifts and their talents and their passions to engage and advance the cause of Christ through the local church so the gospel can be made known to the nations. Listen, the whole reason Christ saved you is so that you can move on into a life of good works. Ephesians 2.10, that God created you. Why? Because of this. The reason we give evidence of our faith in James says by the way that we work and so the whole plan of God for my life is, is not wondering, does God want me to be engaged? Does God want me to live on mission? Does God want me to be invested in local church and advance the cause? Listen, that is the general will of God for everyone's life. You don't have to even pray about that. And so, so I'd, I'd like for it to be a little more specific than that. Like, I, I get that and, and I understand that. But there's just some mystery about what that looks like in my life and different opportunities. Let me just make this really simple for you, all right? In discovering uh, what God's specific will is for your life, once you embrace the God given call that all of us are to live on mission, that we are just as called as the Apostle Paul, that was a unique, listen, that just as called as he was, that when you come to a place of discovering the spe- specific part of the will of God for your life, let me just fill the blank, let me make it so, so simple. Here, here's what you do you find something you love. You find something you're passionate about. You find something you're good at. And you find a way to intentionally do it to advance the Gospel for the glory of God. Well, don't I need to take a spiritual gifts test? Find something you love. Find something you're gifted at. Find something you're passionate about and find a way to do it for the glory of God. You see, we have this twisted view that the call of God on my life must be something I don't enjoy and the suffering is for the glory of God, right? Right? Like like, how many times have you heard someone say, well, if you don't have anyone else to work in the toddler class, I guess I will. Great. Have a good day in there, kids. Right? Listen, find something. Listen, if it's sports, find a way to do that to advance. There's lots of opportunities for that. To advance the gospel in an intentional way. If you Listen, if you're good at something, just... Find a way. We had a group of ladies this week. They, they knitted. They loved to crochet. And so we found a partnership. And so what they do, they've knitting and crocheting. And guess what? We sent all kinds of stuff for babies and orphanages over to Guatemala this week. Find something you love to do and do it for the glory of God. Don't, don't make it complicated. Just find a place you're passionate about. Because it's the general will of God that every person in here needs to embrace their God-given assignment. So just before we move this point, so there's no lack of clarity here this morning, I want every person here to raise your right hand. Raise your right hand. And I want you to repeat after me, I am just as called as the Apostle Paul. Now turn to your neighbor and say, I'm a missionary, baby. So it starts off the foundation, fundamental conviction is embracing, embracing your God-given assignment. People on mission just—they just believe that the call of God in life is to advance the gospel. That's just a foundational conviction for them. They just pursue that. Let me tell you the second reality of a person living on mission. Second thing is this. We'll just walk through these two quickly. Second one is this: people on mission are also zealous defenders of the gospel. They are zealous defenders of the gospel. When you're pouring out your life for the sake of the gospel and living on mission. You have no margin for false Gospels. You have no margin in your life for anyone not preaching the Gospel. That when you're pouring out your life for the sake of the Gospel, listen, you defend it, you proclaim it, you protect it. And so you pour out your you have no margin for those who preach a false Gospel. This is exactly where Paul was at. Look at verses 6 and 7. I marvel. I'm, I'm astounded that you're turning away so soon from Him who called you in the grace of Christ To a different gospel, which is not another. It's not the gospel. There's some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. What was happening here in this context is this. is Paul had won some people to Christ, they'd spent their whole life around in Judaism, so they knew nothing else. And so the idea that they could just receive Christ and totally be free in Christ was so foreign and radical. Then there were some people who came along, Judaizers is what we refer to later in the scripture, who came along and said, hey, that's fine. If you want to embrace Jesus, that's fine. But if you really want to seal the deal, what you need to do is also be circumcised. You also need to eat these foods and not these foods. You also need to uh, observe all these feasts and worship and festivals if you really want to make sure you're okay with God. And Paul said this, he said, I can't believe it. He said that any time someone comes and adds something to the gospel, that it's no longer the gospel. And if it's no longer the gospel, it does not save And can I tell you this morning that people are still promoting all kinds of false gospels that still aren't the true gospel? Let me give you a few of those that we see in our culture. Uh, So it's a legalistic gospel. Jesus gets the party started, but you have to work hard or perform certain acts to keep it going or keep it secure. You've got to, yes, you receive Christ, but, but you've got to be baptized. Or yes, you can receive Christ, but you've got to speak in tongues. Or yes, you can receive Christ, but you've got to follow this list of rules. This is a false gospel. Salvation is by the grace of God through faith alone. You can't add anything to grace. Once you add something to grace, it's no longer grace. And if it's not grace, it's not the gospel. And if it's not the gospel, it doesn't save. It's a false gospel. There's a legalistic gospel. There's a social gospel that's popular in our culture. That the whole purpose of the gospel is to make sure we live in a just world and you know, make sure that people aren't hungry and those kinds of things. Now, let me just pause here before we go on. Listen, that should be the byproduct of a person whose life has been changed by the gospel. But that is not the purpose of the gospel. That is not the purpose. The social gospel is not the gospel. So there's a legalistic gospel. There's a social gospel. There is a churchless gospel. Focus salvation is primarily on the individual in a way that makes the community of faith kind of peripheral to God or even some of view the church as an obstacle to pursuing true spirituality. I have a little problem with that. You say, of course you do. You work for a church. You know? Let me just tell you this. Let me just destroy the whole idea. Have you ever heard people say this? Well, like I, you know, I'm, I'm, I love Jesus, but I'm not a fan of the church or organized religion. I just always tell them, Hey, listen, you'll love our church. We're crazy, disorganized, right? So, but people say that. Like I like Jesus, but but not the church. Let me tell you the problem with that. I can destroy that whole system of of theology in one verse. Here's what Acts chapter 20, verse 28 says. Christ shed his blood. For the church. And here's the place I've come to my own spiritual journey. I'm pro anything that Christ shed his blood for. And the scripture says that Christ shed his blood for the church. And the church is described in scripture as the bride of Christ. And so saying you love Jesus, but hate the church is like telling someone, hey, I really like you, but I hate your wife. Now, you may think that, but you don't say that, right? And so there's this churchless gospel like I can be. You're to know, have a personal relationship with Christ, but not a corporate relationship. And there's a prosperity gospel. You know, once you're in God's favor, the way you know you're in God's favor is financial prosperity and all those kinds of things. Listen, just turn on the TV. That's everything that you see on TV. That's a perversion of the gospel. Let me, let me tell you how I know that's not the gospel. Let me tell you a litmus test for truth. A litmus test for truth is this. If it's true, you can preach in any season, any culture, any time period. It will still be true. Why? Because truth by its very nature is objective, not subjective. And so you take that prosperity gospel and you go over to some third world country And try to preach that gospel. You'll get laughed off the stage. Why? Because it's not true over there. Why? Because truth by its very nature is objective. And if it can't hold weight in every culture, then it's not truth. And the problem with the prosperity gospel is this. Listen, when I look at all that God has for me in the abundant life, John 10, 10, that Jesus... Listen, the prosperity gospel isn't prosperous enough. God has so much more for me than those things. The true gospel is that Jesus Christ died to save sinners from God's wrath. And God raised him from the dead to prove he was an acceptable sacrifice to satisfy God's demand that sin be atoned for by grace alone through faith alone. That is the biblical gospel that God saves people from the wrath of God, from those who reject Jesus. And I know, listen, that's not marketable. If you brought a guest today, you're like, oh, I wish you would have said that. Or that's not hip or that's not, you know, cool. It's not sexy in our culture. Listen, that is the biblical gospel. And I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God and the salvation. Romans 1 So let's keep preaching the gospel. And be defenders of the gospel and be zealous for the gospel because it alone sets men free. It alone brings dead people to life. Can I get an amen? That's good. Both of you. Thank you. People on mission third. People on mission third is this. People on mission are not detracted by detractors. People on mission are not detracted by detractors. I don't know a lot about fishing. But here's what I do know. Do you know the only type of fish that does not make waves? It's the one floating upside down on the top. Some of you just looked to the person next to you and said, what kind is that? A dead one. The only fish that doesn't make waves is a dead one. And if you're swimming upstream against the tide of our culture that is anti-gospel, anti-Christ, you're going to make some waves if you're alive in Jesus. And So you have to decide on the front end of this missionary journey called life If when those people push back because you're making waves, you have to decide on the front end that it's the favor of God, not the applause of men, is what motivates you. Because if it's the applause of men, as soon as you get some pushback and people aren't cheering for you, guess what? Your ministry will end as soon as it started. I like to think of this section of Scripture kind of this way. Verses six and seven is what Paul is standing for, the the true gospel that saves people. But then we see all the, his life poured out for the sake of the gospel. Uh, and we see, well, why, did, why was Paul so resolved through all that adversity? I like to think of verse one as, as one bookend and verse 10 as another bookend. His life is spent for the gospel, verses six and seven. Why? On the front end, why? Because he was called of God. And so as a result of that, on the back end, verse 10, he was called of God. And at the end of the day, it's the call of God and the approval of God, not the applause of men that keeps him going. Can I tell you this in your life? The same thing is true. The same thing is true. What pushes you through adversity. Look at verse 10. What's he say? For I now persuade men or God. Do I seek to please men? For if I still please men, I would not be a bond servant of Christ. Now, I want you to listen closely. We're almost done. Listen closely. If the idol of your heart is affirmation or acceptance or approval, that is to the enemy what blood is in the water. To a shark. If the idol of your life is affirmation or acceptance or approval that comes in the applause of men. That is to the enemy what blood is in the water to a shark. Because the one thing that will stop you from pursuing God's call on your life. Is not receiving the applause of men. Instead of pushing after the favor of God. Jesus said this. He said, listen, if they hated me. They're going to hate you. In my life, when I was, I didn't grow up in church, didn't go to church a whole lot. And so when I told some friends of mine, listen, I didn't grow up in church and I wasn't always a preacher. And so you can fill in the blank on uh, some of the things that I did. And I'm not going to glory in my sin. But 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 here's what happened. When I, when I told some friends of mine who had observed my life up to that point, I said, listen, I think God's going to I think I'm going to ministry. They said, are you sure? Like, are you sure? Like, I still run into people like, I can't believe you're a pastor. I'm like, me neither. Right. And so listen, when you embrace your God-given assignment, there'll be people that say, are you sure? Is there not someone else more gift? Are you sure God wants you to do that? And you have to decide on the front end that it is the applause of heaven, not the approval of men, that is going to motivate you through those times when you're, there are detractors that come along. And they will come along. Most of my ministry has been leading turnaround in churches. I love it. I absolutely love it. Uh, some people look at those terrible situations and I, I just my heart beats for them. And they look at those and uh, here's why I found those situations. The reason those churches are a mess is because they need a lot of change. And so I love change. You know what I've discovered in 14 years of doing this? Not everyone in the church loves change. Matter of fact, some of them makes them angry. And in leading churches, there have been detractors. Even for me. I have gotten some anonymous notes in the offering plate and they were not love notes, all right? Listen, and so in my pursuing my call, it doesn't bother me when I came here, all the difficulties of the church, I could have cared less. Why? Because I was called of God, verse 1. And secondly, I could care less about what people think, but I care a lot about what God thinks. Verse 10. And you've got to decide on the front end of your life, because if not, your ministry will end as soon as you get some pushback and detractors. Let me give you a paraphrase of verse 10. You know what verse 10 says in current cultural language? Hater's going to hate. So just go on and do what you got to do for God. All right. That's exactly what verse 10 is saying. And if you don't decide on the front end that it's the favor of God instead of the applause of men, then as soon as someone comes along and says, are you sure you'll quit? You'll quit. Several years ago, I came across this quote from, I think I heard it from Rick Warren. Here's what he said He said, You have two choices for your life. You can waste it, or you can invest it. You can waste your life in things that are temporal, or you can invest in things that are eternal. And the only two things that are eternal are people and the Word of God. Scripture says of the Word, it says, Your Word, O Lord, endures forever. The only two things that are eternal are people and and the Word of God. I just thought that was so powerful and so true. It just stuck with me. Uh, I should have told Rick Warren said that I should have said, you know, I've always said. That's what I, but it just stuck with me. I thought that was so true. And so I came across the book shortly after that, uh, written by John Piper, called Don't Waste Your Life. And I'm like, there it is again, that theme of wasting your life. And so let me just close, close with a few quotes from Piper's book. Here's what Piper's book said. It was becoming clear and clear that if I wanted to come to the end of my life and not say I've wasted it, But now we need to press all the way in and all the way up to the ultimate purpose of God and join Him in it. In other words, I need to be on mission. The greatest cause in the world is joyfully rescuing people from hell, meeting their earthly needs, making them glad in God and doing it with a kind, serious pleasure that makes Christ look like the treasure that He is. And the way that we do that is through the Church. And here's the scary part, church. There is no plan B. There is no plan B. God's going to continue His mission. And here's how I see it. If God's on a mission, we should probably join Him. If Christ died for the church, then spending our life investing in one to advance the gospel is probably a worthy investment. And if God's going to use local churches to accomplish His mission then I'm just convinced it might as well be ours as one of them. Let's not waste our lives. Let's invest it. May it be said of us that our days on this planet were spent pouring our lives for the gospel, charging hell with squirt guns. Let's not waste our life, church. Let's invest it for the glory of God. I invite you to pray with me if you would.